Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 382 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, part of our Location and the Writer series, Beth and Roberts yearns for the island of Anglesey in Wales, a place of family history, childhood holidays, and a beautiful, mysterious family language. Then, Morgan Witzel explores the moods of Dartmoor and surveys the many writers, including himself, who've been inspired by its solitude. Finally, Rebecca Goss looks up at the skies she's lived beneath and considers how they've shaped her writing from above. First, here's Beth and Roberts on Anglesey. My first novel, The Pools, was set in the fictionalised location of Darvington, a quiet, landlocked Thames Valley town dominated by the local power station, a place where nothing ever happens until it does. It's not hard to work out that it's based on Abingdon, where I grew up. When I started the novel in my late 20s, Abingdon seemed a perfect location for the kind of bleak, could-be-anywhere-in-middle-England setting that I wanted for my grim, pared-back, noirish, or so I hoped, novel. But I had a secret. Despite setting my novel in the shadow of a very English power station, I longed for the south shore of Anglesey in North Wales, where my father grew up. When I was around six years old, my father taught me how to pronounce the name of the village on his birth certificate, and it became my party trick. Weirdly, my favourite primary school teacher, Mrs Glynis Barton, dark-eyed and straight-backed, often wearing a cautious smile, was also from Anglesey and I still remember the thrill of being able to run the rolling rrrrs and spit out the to her. When I cut my knee, Dad made me feel better by telling me that the blood that oozed out was Welsh blood, and it was special. You could tell because it was very dark red. All of which turned Anglesey into a slightly mythical place in my imagination. I knew that writers had special places, that stories often grew in strange and foreign lands. I only had to look at my ladybird version of Rapunzel or Snow White and Rose Red. I also knew that these stories often featured close-knit communities where everyone knew each other and people had charming nicknames, see my Millie Molly Mandy collection. Anglesey, specifically Brinshinkin, where my granny Roberts lived in a pebble-dash bungalow, with a view of the distant mountains across the Menai Straits, and neighbours called Willie Chips and Auntie Maggie seemed to have all these things. Every year we'd spend a week of the summer holidays there. In the back of Dad's white Ford Cortina, my brother and I fought over red opal fruits and who owned the armrest as we journeyed through the Midlands. But once we were surrounded by the forbidding peaks of Snowdonia, we fell quiet. We never stopped to stretch our legs in the mountains, preferring the little chef near Shrewsbury. We weren't a family of walkers. Such things were for middle-class tourists. The first one to spot the Menai Bridge won an extra opal fruit. But even then, 
The sight of the elegant chained arms of the suspension bridge and the glittering strait below was prize enough. Often it rained every day of the holiday. Often it was grey and cold. But it was another world, a million miles from our safe little council estate in its holy flat landscape. It was a world of untidy wild flowers and a pungent alien smell along the lane down to the sea at Llanidan. It took me years to name this odour as wild garlic. It was a world of slightly terrifying crabs caught on string from the bladderack-strewn groin, a world of chapel and chips on the front at Bangor, of slate roofs and my auntie's small holding where we fed lambs and sat on ponies. And it was, in part, my world. But it was a world, most of all, of the Welsh language. When Dad was in Wales, he spoke this other tongue. Neither Mum nor my brother Owen nor I could decipher what he said, apart from Nostar Cariad Bach, uttered every night. And whilst I found the sound of these words coming from Dad's mouth to be intriguing and beautiful, this sound meant he wasn't ours any more. He belonged, once again, to the island and to his other family. It wasn't that I resented it. I was proud and interested. I just wanted to be part of it. So it was an odd, intense experience being on the island. This was my family. These were my roots, or at least half of them, but I couldn't make head nor tail of what anyone said. Of course, my Welsh family all spoke English to me, but to Dad they spoke their native tongue. I suppose what I was experiencing was my first taste of being a foreigner. What made it odd was that I was a foreigner in my own family. Nowadays, I guess most Welsh speakers would want their children to be bilingual and would bring them up accordingly, but in 1970s England this wasn't really a thing. In the days before Welsh was properly celebrated and nurtured, it was too easy to dismiss as a remote, half-forgotten language. Dad never spoke Welsh at home, and the idea of us learning Welsh was never suggested. I suppose that because Mum didn't speak it, and neither did anyone else in Amundon, apart from Mrs Barton, he didn't see the point. Occasionally I would make a silent vow to learn Welsh. Sometimes I would ask Dad to teach me something, but he was never the most patient of tutors, and I hated the thought of getting things wrong, so these efforts were always short-lived. Whenever I was back in England, I felt a romantic longing for Anglesey and all things Welsh, undoubtedly in part because these things were exotic, and, like the blood Dad had claimed as Welsh, they gave me a sense of identity and nurtured a fantasy of being different, being special. It helped, too, that I came to realise Wales was a place associated with writers and with a certain artistic sensibility that seemed very seductive to a girl who spent most of her time either in the school library or on the sofa, eating biscuits and watching Countdown. It took me a long time, though, to write about Anglesey. It wasn't until my fourth novel, Mother Island, that I plucked up courage to travel there imaginatively. The book began as an historical novel, an imaginative investigation into what happened to my great-aunt Margaret, who left Brinchinkin for Liverpool in the 1920s, and whose body was later found in the lake at Sefton Park. When I discovered this story, a long-buried family secret, I was excited and promptly went on a research trip to Liverpool to find out more. 
I began reading about the history of Anglesey during the period, but I soon realised that I was up against the same problem I'd had on holiday in Granny's bungalow. It didn't matter how much I felt this story was part of my heritage, or how closely I listened, I didn't understand its language, Welsh. So the novel became a partly contemporary tale, an accidental thriller about a nanny who steals a child, gleaned from my own fears, frustrations and joy at becoming a new mother. I got around the language issue by writing about a family of incomers on Anglesey, a bunch of English people who, like myself, didn't speak the lingo and failed to fully integrate into the life of the island. I think I got away with it, and for a while it seemed that I'd done it. I'd written my Welsh book. I'd explored that magical southern shoreline of South Anglesey with its crabs and seaweed and wild garlic and chapel and chips. Last year, my lovely dad died, having been diagnosed with a highly aggressive brain tumour which took six months to strip him of his life. Now I'm longing to go to the island again, both literally and on the page. And the story that I most want to tell, of course, is some version of his story. But when I go there, I'll be without his guidance. Welsh won't be coming out of my father's mouth, beautiful and intriguing, ever again. I would like to say that now is the time to learn to speak this language myself. But I know that other commitments, not to mention my own limitations and laziness, will get in the way. So I'm left with the longing to be there, to be part of something that only half belongs to me. Perhaps that's enough. Perhaps that's even a place to begin a story. That was Beth and Roberts. Next, here's Morgan Witzel on Dartmoor. From the bottom of my very small garden, I look out on Dartmoor. The tours, High Will Hayes, Yes Tour, Sorton Tour, fill the southern horizon. Their appearance changes with the weather and the seasons. In the spring, they are green with a texture like velvet. In the summer, they grow golden as the grass dries. And in autumn, the slopes are stained dark with heather. In winter they are often streaked white with snow. The stone crests of the tours have been eroded by wind and rain into fantastic sculpted shapes. From a distance they look like ships riding on a stormy sea. Thousands of years ago Dartmoor was covered in forest. Neolithic settlers cleared the forest for agriculture and for charcoal, and today only a few fragments remain, like spooky desolate Wistman's Wood, or the vestigial woodland in the valley above Maldon. Trees as old as time grow from crevices between moss-covered boulders, twisted shapes reaching towards the sunlight. Even in the Middle Ages, this was a busy place with settlements and trade routes. If you look carefully, you can see the evidence of their passing, like the foundations of houses at Hound Tor, or the clapper bridges, huge slabs of stone thrown down to serve as bridges across the moor's many streams. Today, human presence has dwindled away to almost nothing, there are isolated villages, like Belston on the moor's northern edge, or Widdicombe, tucked into a deep valley with its tall church spire standing like a lighthouse. There are a few farms, a pub here and there, the gaunt grey buildings of the prison at Princetown. Elsewhere the land is empty. 
Apart from the main road, you can walk all day across the tours and see no one. Your only company is sheep, and the small, semi-feral Dartmoor ponies, and the buzzards and kites wheeling in the sky. This is the last lonely place in southern England. Not surprisingly, the emptiness and loneliness of Dartmoor have led to a lively tradition of ghost stories, perhaps inspired by the haunting presence of the lost civilizations that have come and gone. Tales of flickering lights, ghostly voices, invisible running feet, cloven hoofprints, and so on, are the stuff of Dartmoor legend. Famously, Arthur Conan Doyle was inspired by the legend of the phantom hounds said to roam the moor, to write the hound of the Baskervilles. Less famously, it also inspired one of the worst puns of all time. The burger van that used to part near Hound Tor was called the Hound of the Basket Meals. It is often said that writing is a lonely business. Uh, could that be why so many writers have been inspired by Dartmoor, or have chosen it as a place to live and work? Conan Doyle was not the only writer of mysteries to have been fascinated by the moor. Agatha Christie's The Sitterford Mystery is set on the moor, her fictional village of Sitterford based on Belston. Parts of Dorothy L. Sayers's The Documents in the Case are set in the area around Manhattan. John Galsworthy began an affair with his lover, the wonderfully named Ada Nemesis Cooper. Uh, just as an aside, who looks at a small child in a cradle and thinks, I shall name you Nemesis? At a house on Dartmoor, and spent part of nearly every year there. Several of his Foresight novels were written there. Evelyn Waugh was also a regular visitor. The clergyman, Sabine Baring Gould, was a great collector of Dartmoor folklore and music, and published several volumes, like his Book of Dartmoor, in 1900. Dartmoor still continues to influence writers in every genre. Philip Reeve and Sarah McIntyre have been inspired by Dartmoor, where Philip lives, and the hero of their current children's series, Kevin the Flying Pony, is based on a Dartmoor pony. I still cherish a memory of walking on the moor and watching Sarah try to photograph a Dartmoor pony to serve as the basis for Kevin, and the pony resolutely turning and showing his backside each time she tried to get close. And of course, I shall get green ink letters if I don't mention this, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the final of the Quidditch World Cup was held on Dartmoor, from one form of the supernatural to another. I grew up in lonely places in the wilderness of northern Canada, and to me the solitude of Dartmoor is familiar and full of peace. In the 19th century, travel writers, under the influence of Ruskin, enthused about the connection they felt with the land on Dartmoor. One declared he felt more lonely in a London crowd than he did on the moor. I understand that sentiment entirely. I did my time living and working in London and other cities, the teeming anthills of civilization. I won't say I didn't enjoy it, because that would be wrong, but I never felt entirely at home. For me, there was always a sense of rootlessness. My writing, at least my fiction writing, has mostly been set in wild places, the Canadian forests along the Niagara frontier, or the bleak isolation of Romney Marsh. Presumably this is some sort of unconscious harking back to my childhood. A psychologist would know. I have used Dartmoor several times in my own writing. There is an as-yet-unpublished novel set partly on the moor, and several years ago I wrote a song theory based on another Dartmoor ghost story, The Legend of Lady Mary Howard, who rides each night to Oakhampton Castle in a coach made of the bones of the husbands she has poisoned. 
The Bride of Oakhampton Castle is the only song of mine ever to be performed in public, and probably will remain so, but it goes down a storm at the Friends of Oakhampton Library music evenings. I have an idea for another novel based around some of the Dartmoor ghost stories in which the lead character, a survivor of the Charge of the Light Brigade suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, uses these legends to explore some of his own inner demons. This, however, will require me to read more ghost stories than a lot of pre-Freudian psychology, and I think I will need a fair amount of strength for both. But there is more to Dartmoor than just beautiful scenery and ghost stories, and I think that is why people like Galsworthy chose it as a place to write. In the twenty years that I have lived here, the moor has become a place to think, and dream, and imagine. Walking is my favourite way of getting time alone to think, and Dartmoor's limitless spaces and wide-open skies are the perfect place. I have never thought of myself as a particularly spiritual person, but up on the moor, the sense of being connected to the land and the wind and the clouds is very powerful. Somehow, in some alchemical way that I don't understand, that connection fires up the synapses in my brain. I start to think about different things in different ways. Other connections are made between characters, between stories, between places. Very often places with no connection to the moor itself. Scenes, expressions, passages of text start to form themselves whole in my mind. Some of them don't quite fit. I will sift these out and either discard them or save them for another project. Others lodge themselves in my mind and refuse to go. These, I know, are the right fragments, the things I will use in whatever I am writing. My wife and I have a favourite place to go when we work together, up on the northern edge of the moor, above Oakhampton. On certain days of the year the army used us as a firing range, so there are no buildings here, no structures, no people. Alone with the sheep and the kites, we sit on top of a hill and look out over the patchwork fields of Devon, stretching away towards the distant sea. The times we live in are strange, confusing, and uncertain. But the earth endures, somehow, despite all the things our species has done to it. And on Dartmoor we can see and feel the past, present, and future coming together. On Dartmoor there is peace, and on Dartmoor too there is hope. As long as we keep writing we will come here, and Dartmoor will be part of our work until the end. That was Morgan Witzel. Next, here's Rebecca Goss on the skies. At my sister's wedding, held in a barn in a remote part of the Suffolk countryside in which we grew up, my father described raising his daughter under broad Suffolk skies. I wrote a poem for that day, about the vows my sister was about to speak, that they may go on to adopt a tangible form to be carried in pockets with your coins and your keys, or collect in the jar with your unusual shells. The poem took me weeks to write, but my efforts were rather trumped by my father's speech. His was notoriously not a long address. He delivered a micro-speech at my wedding eight years earlier, but those words were tenderly spoken, the sun lowering behind him in the barn's doorway as he told us of how this treasured Suffolk landscape had shaped the people he loved. My parents have spent their whole lives living in East Anglia and ensured their children thrived under that sky's wide expanse. We were left to be wild beneath it, at one point living very rurally in a run-down farmhouse with its huddle of black, dilapidated barns. School holidays saw my three siblings and I tipped out of the back door into fields, streams and deep ditches with only our dog as our guardian. 
We did not come back for hours. My mother said she never worried about us, not once, grateful for the peace, I'm sure. We would return to the kitchen, all of us dirty, scratched and tired after a day of play and argument. When I think of my own young daughter now, unsupervised at a stream's fluctuant depths, I squirm in my chair. Years on from my permitted wild play, I am not sure I could ever let my own child be so free. I'm not sure I could allow myself to be so trusting of the countryside to keep her safely in its care. I have written poems about my childhood beneath that Suffolk sky, picking blackberries with my father, reaching for those small dark fruits, dull from road dust, watching as our smudging fingers made them bright again. I have recorded childhood afternoons, charged with younger siblings and the freedoms of a wood, the sun filtering its canopy to spread our shadows across the bracken. Whilst I would grow to rail against the county's parochial trappings, I still remember pieces of sky I lay beneath as a teenager in the early 90s, shoulder to shoulder with my girlfriends, all of us drunk, stoned and laughing at clouds. Did we appreciate the beauty above us? Maybe not, but I'm sure the limits of rural village life were briefly forgotten as we let ourselves be swallowed by the oncoming night. Out there, in the fields... When only the stars could see us, it would be over a decade before Anne Sexton's Young became my favourite poem and I found my teenage self in its lines. I, in my brand new body, which was not a woman's yet, told the stars my questions. At 18, I exchanged a southern sky for a northern one and left home to go to university in Liverpool, a city that would hold me for the following 20 years. Under this sky, I experienced freedoms of a very different kind. I got to know a dawning sky, welcoming me as I appeared from the depths of a nightclub, sweat still on my skin as I prayed for a cab. At the city's docks, I loved the urban skyscape that surrounded me, bearing its historical landmarks, those proud liver birds high above my head. My husband, Liverpool born and bred, claims the city never feels claustrophobic, to him, it never feels densely occupied or even particularly built up. He believes this is because of the river. No matter where you live in Liverpool, you can get to the river easily. It is accessible from the city centre and once at the docks you can see across the large stretch of Mersey to Birkenhead and beyond, gulls dipping its strong sandy currents. The river is always nearby and with it comes ever-changing light and a far-reaching firmament. The Mersey allowed my Suffolk eyes, used to looking across vast tracts of arable land, to no distance once again. During my latter years living in Liverpool, I spent a lot of time in the city's hospitals. My elderly mother-in-law was a patient at the Royal Hospital for months. My first child moved from the women's hospital where she was born and diagnosed to Older Hay Children's Hospital where she would die the following year. In hospitals, the sky is often denied to you. You are confined to screens, curtains, windowless consulting rooms. I often craved Skye, sitting in a cubicle with my baby who was too poorly to go outside. I wanted to escape the beep of her machines and carry her through hospital doors to Skye's blueness and its birds. My second child was also born at the women's hospital at that wonderfully secret hour of 1am. My husband and I waited until dawn before we told family and friends of her arrival. Until then, 
we privately wandered our new daughter a little longer, letting just the seagulls come to greet her. They swooped outside our open window, her birth having taken place on a hot summer night, cawing a celebration in the Mersey sky. I wrote a poem about those gulls, how they welcomed my daughter that morning. At a poetry reading several years later, I read the poem, not knowing a consultant from the women's hospital was in the audience. At the end of the event, he came to tell me that from his office, he could see a nest of gulls in an adjacent part of the hospital's roof. Even the scouse seagulls have their babies at the women's. When we think of the sky, it is easy to think of how benign we know it to be. We all store particular blue skies and warm suns that, at one time, we have flourished beneath. Yet the sky can rage above us. We have known its storms. We have stood below its tempestuous flashes. At a poetry festival one year, in Dorset, the first night saw poets retreat to their hotels to keep the company of the most spectacular storm. The lightning truly sparked and crackled against our windows for hours and it was the talk of the festival the following day with poets able to produce spontaneous lightning poems at the lectern. The sky can be a dangerous place. In the late 90s, I watched a documentary about the Lockerbie air disaster and listened to the mother of one of the victims speak about her loss. I was transfixed by her composure, her eloquence. She spoke of waiting on the stairs, surrounded by Christmas decorations, waiting for her daughter to come home, of what it was like to have her daughter's things returned to her soaked in aviation fuel. I took this mother's story and made a poem, boldly adopting the first-person voice, imagining what it must have been like to sit on those stairs to receive that package. Then a walk to the garden to hear the distant rumble of aeroplanes, a sudden urge to look upward, see the long hard legs puncturing clouds, hoping the sky will relinquish her a daughter to be pulled safely through the trees. When my own daughter was lost to me, a book of poems came in the years that followed her death. Inside that book, you will find me in my own garden on a sad anniversary, releasing a paper lantern into the blackest of skies, watching it head towards a celestial sphere. You will find the sky at Walberswick Beach, how it watched over us as we scattered my daughter's ashes into the sea. But another child came, and in that same book you will find me ducking beneath a washing line, holding her face up to the night, my delight as she reaches out to touch the moon. I keep a catalogue of skies in my memory, skies I have lived and loved under, skies that have seen me wake to their hopefulness or weep under their keeping. I have returned to live in East Anglia, and I am once again underneath my father's broad Suffolk skies. The house we bought sits on a fairly busy road, cars come close to the front door and windows, but the walled rear garden is secluded and comes with its own piece of sky. Already, there are poems about looking upward from my small plot. I will continue to record the ordinary and the extraordinary things that can happen in a life, always with a sky's consistent arch above me. That was Rebecca Goss. You can find out more about Beth and Roberts, Morgan Witzel and Rebecca Goss on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 382 which was recorded by Bethan Roberts and Yasser Amir and produced by the Writers Aloud team. 
Coming up in episode 383, Andy Jackson speaks with John Greening about writing groups, imposter syndrome, and people as inspiration. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.